Let's go right up to Revelation. You guys into that? We started studying through the book of Revelation uh, a couple weeks ago. This is actually week three. And what I wanted to ask you as well, I'm going to read the text from Revelation chapter two this morning, but let's not put it on the screen. Let's just, we'll just, that'll be our background slide for the morning. Um, so this is week three, so we're going to start chapter two, which is the beginning of the seven specific addresses, or the seven letters to the seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. So we're going we're gonna to work through all seven of those, but I want to say right up front, some of you, I know you're like, okay, the letters, the seven letters, but when are we going to get to the, like, the beast and the antichrist, and I've got to figure out 666. I mean, this is what we're all waiting for, right? This is why we study Revelation. Hang in there. We're going to get to the fun, weird stuff. Um, But let me emphasize this. Guys, that Revelation isn't about decoding who the Antichrist is. That that would be to royally miss the point. Um, If God wanted us to know exactly who the Antichrist is in 2019... Um, he, he could let us know. He could have let us know. And look, if you've got theories about it, that's fine. We can, we can get into all of that. Um, but let's not miss what I would argue is the real heart of this letter. Jesus speaking to his people. This is what I love about the seven letters. Is that Jesus is addressing his people in very specific contexts. And you get like the heart of our king. For his people. So we'll get to 666 and Antichrist and all the, all the fun stuff. But let's, let's make sure we, we really take our time um, to get the heart of the letter, which I think is given to us right at the very outset, which is what we're doing this morning. So here we go. I thought it would be fun if we pretended like we were the church in Ephesus. And we've just received a letter from Jesus. Could you imagine almost 2,000 years ago? It's the Lord's Day, Sunday, who knows when the church in Ephesus gathered, but a letter comes. It would have come with a courier, it would have come with someone who would have opened the scroll and actually read it out loud. It would have been very well rehearsed, it arguably would have been slightly dramatic. But could you imagine sitting in that little church, that little group of believers existing in the ancient Roman Empire, believing in Jesus and fighting to remain faithful to the king of heaven, and a letter arrives. And they know that at least part of it is addressed specifically to them. Can you imagine? Wouldn't you be like dying to see like, I've heard about this letter going around What does Jesus say to his people in Ephesus? So it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, which is exactly how it begins in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It's typed. The word got word. You get it? I'm sorry. It's bad. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Draw the seven churches. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Of course, they would have gone on to read the rest of Revelation, which would have been one whole letter. But we'll stop there for this morning. So how do you feel, church? What if we were there listening to these words? Some some have argued, some commentators, historians, theologians, have argued that these seven quote-unquote letters to the seven churches are actually not meant to be thought of as specific or individual letters to individual churches, but rather uh, comments or, or words from Jesus to the seven different ages of the church. I don't agree with that reading of Revelation. Um, there's way too much very specific historic context in these words that I think um, sort of lend to that reading. Nevertheless... I think we can read this letter and still ask the question, Jesus, what are you saying to us as your church? I mean, let's face it. That may have been the middle of of, of Asia Minor almost 2,000 years ago, but come on. How much have people really changed? Not so much, I would argue. So what is Jesus saying to us today? First of all, I would want to emphasize that he commends the church in Ephesus. In fact, most of what he says is incredibly positive. So let's, let's not skip right to the, the hard bit. Um, that would be a bit tragic. But he says this. He says, I know your works and toil and patient endurance. Well done. Well done for working hard, for toiling, for patiently enduring. I know your unwillingness to tolerate evil. I commend you for that. He says, I know your diligence to test those who call themselves apostles or uh, legit teachers in the church, and yet they're not. Well done. Well done. Um, Eventually, the church was pastored by Timothy, one of Paul's sons and the Lord. If you ever read First or Second Timothy, Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. 
And according to some of the archaeological findings and writings of the early church fathers, it's said that the Apostle John, who had the revelation that we're reading now, as well as Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is according to church tradition, actually were part of the church in Ephesus. So that's pretty amazing. Could you imagine the guy who wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation? Oh yeah, and the Virgin Mary, go to your church. No big deal. Okay, that's, that's church tradition. No one knows for sure. But they're a pretty awesome church. The Ephesians are ballers. Like, Jesus is pretty pleased with his people in Ephesus. They take good teaching and sound doctrine seriously. And they take living pure, morally upright, God-honoring lives just as seriously. Well done, Ephesians. So that's where he begins. I would like to just take a moment to... um, Now, I'm not Jesus, and we're not Ephesians... But I want to commend you guys. I want to take just a moment to say, guys, some of you that that I know personally, that I interact with on some level, I I know that you, you take God's word so seriously. I know that you take living a life that honors Jesus so seriously. And sometimes you may think, does it does it really matter? Does, does anyone even care? Is anyone even looking? Does God himself even notice? And I'd say, absolutely. Well done. Well done for, for being a faithful child of God. It's hard. It's a lot of work. Um, it comes with a cost. It's the best life ever. It's, it's a life of fullness. It's the abundant life that Jesus promised those who would lose their life and take up their life and follow him. But well done, well done, church. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I love Grace City. I feel, um, I feel very honored, very blessed to be a part of this church because I know so many of you, you, you genuinely love Jesus and you don't want to just waste your time playing religious games. You want to you live your life as if it was, as if every day was a gift from our King. And I can see it. I get around you guys, I get encouraged. I see the way you serve. I see the way you work. I see the way you study your Bibles. I listen to the way you pray. For whatever it's worth, well done, church. I'm, I'm proud to be a part of this church with you. But. <laughs> but. Now, I'm, this is not an, an indictment towards you guys, okay? We're just coming back to the text here. But Jesus said, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What is this love? You're getting so much right. Serious about good theology, sound doctrine actually applying works to your faith which the Bible tells us to do explicitly you're being so faithful to serve you're not growing weary in doing good you're getting so much right Ephesus but I have this one thing against you and this is a big 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 thing the biggest thing you've abandoned the love you have at first 
You're getting everything right except for the main thing. Love. What is this love? It is slightly ambiguous in the text because he doesn't, he just says, the love you had at first. What is it? I remember the first time I heard a message preached on this. Uh, the translation said, you've abandoned your first love. And the guy preached a really heart-wrenching sermon on like, you know, it's like you fell in love with Jesus, but then, you know, it's not like those old nostalgic days and, and that kind of thing. And, and I don't think that that's what he's really talking about here because if it's translated well it's really the love that you had at first it's a kind of love that certainly is a love for Jesus but also love for others it's, it's a love it's a love that if you experience Jesus and all the fullness of his grace, his mercy, his love his forgiveness for you it's the kind of love that comes out of that it's that first love um, verse 5, just after, but I have this against so you've abandoned the love you had at first. Verse 5, he says, in light of abandoning their inaugural love, Jesus says this, he tells them to remember therefore from where they had fallen, repent and do the works that they did at first. Somehow this love that they had abandoned, that they had at first, is connected with specific works that they, they did. And that's an important point because Jesus isn't mere, talking about mere sentiment. He's not just talking about a warm and fuzzy feeling. He's talking about something much more substantial than that. It's a kind of love that's evidenced with action. And that's what he's saying in verse 5. He says it's a love-related to that seemingly awareness of how far they had fallen. He says, you've abandoned your first love, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. As I said, it's the kind of love that is connected with this awareness, this overwhelming awareness that I have fallen so far, or conversely, God has reached down so far God has come down so low so as to lift me up. I have been forgiven so much. And it's a love that somehow flows out of that. Reminds me of um, the words of Jesus in Luke 7, 47. You may remember the story. He's sitting at a dinner party with some religious leaders. They would have been the guys who were getting, getting it all right sound doctrine, masters of the Bible, um, did not tolerate impure living or, or, or bad ethics, and yet they didn't get love. They were the Pharisees, and he's at this dinner table, and a woman comes in, and she's known to be a sinful woman. That's all it says. And she enters the room. She clearly had some sort of encounter with Jesus prior to that moment because when she came and she saw him, she immediately fell down and began to weep at his feet and she poured this costly bottle of, of, of ointment perfume over him and everyone was indignant and they were like, what is this woman doing? Do you know who she is, where she's come from, what she's done? And Jesus rebukes them and he says, lay off. This woman knows forgiveness. See how she loves those who have been forgiven much love much, but those who have not don't. And his point is, when we realize how much we've been forgiven, 
There's a love that flows out of that unlike any other love. And Jesus is saying, remember that. Remember that. It's a love that flows out of being loved. You could call it gratitude. It's that kind of love. Have you ever been in love? You ever been in love? Are you in love? Crushing a little bit? I'm going to start making eye contact with specific people. Just (laughs) raise the awkwardness level in the room. (laughs) Have you ever fallen out of a quote-unquote fallen out of love? Now, I reckon whether you were like 10 years old in the sixth grade or a grown-up, like most of us, I think, have probably felt that feeling of falling in love. Some, Some degree. And if you haven't, that's fine. But I think we all, we all know that feeling at some level. How difficult is it? How hard is it when that initial love begins to wane? Particularly if that love grows into something, i.e. like a relationship, a marriage. What do you do when that first love, that wonderful, beautiful, emotional first love begins to wane? What is that? How does that happen? How does that happen? How did the Ephesians abandon the love that they had at first? That's what I want to know. Like, did they start out well and then something began to go wrong? Could it be uh, like Paul writes a couple of letters to the church in Corinth and he, he has some pretty strong words for them because they're like, They've got knowledge and experience of supernatural power, but he has to set them right because they've completely overlooked love. And it's not necessarily the love they had at first, but it's just, it's love. It's love for people, and they're being super weird. Like, you might walk in and think, man, this is an amazing church. They got this and that and and all the rest going on. Apostles coming through, teaching, signs, wonders, miracles. But where is the love? How are you treating each other? Did you forget that Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. It's it's how you love each other. And that's not to take away from being serious about good teaching and sound doctrine. That's not to take away or marginalize the importance of living lives, morally, upright, godly, pure lives that actually demonstrate the grace of God at work in our lives. That's not to marginalize those things. But if love wanes, then we have lost something crucial. How does that happen? Jesus did say, this is Mar- uh, Matthew twenty four twelve. He said that in the last days, speaking about these days, arguably, he said that love will grow cold. He said sin will increase. He said people will betray each other. People will hate each other. People will do awful things and sin against each other and love will grow cold. So for sure that's one way that love begins to wane. (laughs) Another way is this. You guys get that? 
just breathe. Just go on living. And love will grow cold. It's, um, call it entropy. <laughs> call it humanity. Call it people being really hard and difficult. How long have you been alive? I got 44 years. I have to fight uh, weekly, daily, by the minute at times to not allow uh, betrayal. I felt very, very betrayed this week. Won't go into the story, it's too personal. But I felt overwhelmed by a sense of betrayal this week. A friend, something happened. And um, I'm currently processing through some like, pretty significant heartbreak. The fight I find myself fighting is to not allow that, that pain to harden my heart. When someone sins against me, and it's, you know, I, don't, I, could, I couldn't care less about the rando on the street. You can yell at me, you can flip me off, whatever. I'm, I've got a life to live. But my brother or my sister, someone who I actually love and, and am in intimate relationship with, someone that I've been vulnerable with, that kind of betrayal, it makes you want to just build walls around your heart and say, that's not going to ever happen again. Not to me. And love wanes. Love grows cold. Oh, there's a beautiful naivety about the way children love. They just don't know any better. They don't know how dangerous it is. Such vulnerability. And yet Jesus says, that's exactly the way I want you to love. Trust me. It is risky. But do it anyway. It's called being alive in Jesus What are the consequences if we fail to reclaim our love? Because Jesus says something quite explicit. He says, if you don't turn it around, if you don't remember from where you've fallen and repent, then I'm going to come. It's interesting, in every one of the letters, he, has some, he says something to do with I'm going to come. In fact, it's a theme that we'll see all throughout Revelation. I'm going to come, I'm going to come, I'm going to come. He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to take away your lampstand. Brandon Gray pointed out to me that we actually have a seven-stemmed lampstand in our little church building here. So there, there you go. It's quite heavy. <laughs> Jesus says, if you don't reclaim the love you had at first, if you don't come back to that first love, I'm going to come... I'm going to blow you out. I'm going to take away your lampstand. It's a bit, a bit of a, a tricky use of words because the church is the lampstand, but Jesus says, I'm going to come away and take away your lampstand. In other words, if you don't repent and begin to love again out of that place of deep gratitude and forgiveness, then you will cease to be my church. That's what he says. And will take away your lampstand. What's a lampstand? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks at the very end of, his, of the Beatitudes. He, he concludes by talking about you don't take a lamp and put it under a basket. It's made to be a light so that the world can look on and recognize 
the, the grace of God that's at work within you and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's, that's what our love is meant to do. You know, it's not even just about like, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't you enjoy that old nostalgic feeling of falling in love all over again? That would be nice. But I'm not in high school anymore. Forgive me if you're in high school. I want more than just good feelings that I might call love. Feelings are wonderful. But I'm on mission with Jesus. Guys, we're on mission with Jesus. I hope. I hope you're on mission with Jesus. As a church, we're following Jesus, and the way we love each other is crucial because we are meant to be a light to the world. And when people look on, you know what they need to experience? You know what they need to be able to observe objectively? Is the way we're loving each other. This is how the world will know, will know that we belong to Jesus. What the world doesn't need is more moralist, know-it-all, religious people. You say, man, I could tell you every doc, my doctrine is airtight. <laughs> I, am the ju- I will tell you who is the real biblical teacher or not. Oh yeah, that's, that's what we need more of. The world doesn't need more religious moralists. Moralists at best, bigots at worst. The world needs a people who have been captivated and are compelled by the love of God in Christ. There you go. How do we get it back? That's, that's a, there's the question right there. So some of you are like, <clears throat> okay, tell me more. I'm feeling convicted. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, um, you know what? I get the whole, I, I feel slightly, I don't know if cold is the right word, but I used to have a love for Jesus and I used to feel Jesus' love flowing through me. I, I, I resonate with that sort of like first love idea. And now I'm at a place where I don't like hate people. Man, I've lost that loving feeling. I'm, I'm like, how do I get it back? I, f- I feel a slightly numb, complacent. And the thing that's, that terrifies me more than anything else is that like, I don't really even care all that much. Like I'm complacent about my complacency. Can you relate? Like what do you do with that? Where do you go from there? Just hope that the music's extra good Sunday morning? That wouldn't be bad. It's always great. So there you go. Okay, this is what Jesus says specifically and quite simply to the Ephesian church. He said, remember from where you have fallen, humble yourself, humble yourself, and then repent. Come back to the center. Reorient yourself around God's grace in Jesus. Wouldn't you just like it to be more complicated than that? It's not. It's not. Remember from where you've fallen. Humble yourself. When was the last time you, you confessed 
sin to a brother or a sister? When was the last time you felt deeply convicted for sin in your life? And by sin, I mean um, self-centeredness would be one sort of word to describe it. Um, self-absorption, being more interested with your agenda, your feelings, your opinions than God's. It's like rebellion. Or maybe you could think of it in terms of idolatry where you, you might with your mouth say Jesus is Lord but with your affections really he's not. Some, something or someone else is. That's what the ancients simply referred to as idolatry. A sin. When was the last time you felt the Holy Spirit convict you of sin and then you repent? It's a really healthy thing. I mean, to, to be sure, it's, it's, a, it's a cathartic experience for sure, but it, it's, it's a cleansing experience as well. More generally, there's another pattern that emerges here in the letter. In fact, this is a pattern that we see over and over and over all throughout the seven letters and the book of Revelation itself. Let me quickly break it down for you. It begins with here. Jesus says in verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. That's sort of his final statement, one of his final statements. You've heard everything that I've said. Now, are you listening? He who has an ear, let him hear, let her hear what the spirit says to the churches. What happens after we hear? John himself actually begins this pattern that I'm about to outline for you. What did John do when he heard the voice of Jesus behind him. He looked, he lifted up his head, he opened his eyes and he turned around to see where the voice was coming from. This is what he says in chapter one, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. You know, when we hear God, now I don't know if you've ever had an audible experience of God. I've not, would love to. But when we hear God, it's meant to actually cause us to respond. You know that the Hebrew word for hear in the Old Testament? I'm talking about Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. That's a famous prayer that's called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Do you know what the Hebrew word for obey is? Shema. It's the same word. In the Hebrew mind, to hear and to respond in obedience, it's the same concept. It's literally the same word in the Hebrew. Shema. To hear is to respond. To hear is to obey. If you say you've heard God's word but fail to obey, you're, um, what do you call that? Hypocrite. That's the word. Lovely word, isn't it? <clears throat> to hear is to awake. When God speaks, when the Holy Spirit convicts, we're meant to open our eyes. We're meant to become aware. We're meant to wake up. No one likes waking up, especially my six-year-old. 
He's hilarious. Hear, see, number three, bow. What did John do? He heard the voice, he turned, he looked, and immediately when he saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. What's another word for that? Humility. Humility. It's one of those um, wonderful and equally unpleasant emotions in life. It's a healthy thing to be confronted with like, man, I'm, what I need to do now is just to simply kneel and humble myself and say, God, would you please forgive me? You call it the fear of the Lord. The awareness that before a holy and awesome God who created the universe and put breath in my lungs, I have a, I've sinned against and offended my creator. The, the natural, rational, logical response in that moment is humility. It's to fear God and kneel before his throne. So we hear, we look, we bow, but fourthly and most importantly, we receive his power. What happened to John when he kneeled? He thought he was gonna die. He thought, this is it, man, I'm, I'm, I'm undone. I've come face to face with the king. And this is just John. I mean, what kind of sin could he possibly have been getting up to on Patmos? But he kneeled before his king. And what did Jesus do? It said he took his right hand and he placed it on his shoulder. And he said, don't be afraid. Arise. Jesus doesn't look down at us and just say, oh, you worm. You pathetic little vile creature, you. No, he doesn't do that. James 4 says, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he lifts us up. He exalts us in due time. That's the goodness, the mercy, the grace of our father, our king. He puts his right hand, which is his hand of power, and he places it on us, and he imparts to us grace, mercy, and power to arise. Because what does he conclude by saying? What's the very last thing that Jesus says in his letter to the Ephesians, verse seven, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Guys, to come back to the love that we had at first is to conquer. To love is to conquer. Now we're gonna talk a whole lot more about what, how does a Christian conquer? In fact, I'm gonna argue that virtually the entire book of Revelation is like a field manual for followers of Jesus to conquer in the empire. And I'm talking about Babylon or Rome or the United States of America, greatest empire on the planet. It's a great country, I love our country, but we're living in an empire that does not put Jesus on the throne, just like the Ephesians. To love is to conquer. You know, I, got in a, um, I asked my wife for permission to share this, um, but I, Shirley and I got in an argument this week. We've been married over 12 years, finally had our first fight. Bless you, my child. 
Yeah, we had an argument. It was, it was doozy. It was a good one. <clears throat> We're good now. When you're in that, that place, it's like this is, this is the love of my life. My goodness, there's not another human being on the planet that I love as much as this woman. And yet, in that moment, talk about love growing cold. In that moment, it feels like, man, how do we come back from here? It just feels like it's all come apart. It's hard. Those hopeless perspective is like, is gone. And you know, like I, nothing in me wants to woo my wife. Or like, let's just, let's chat, my love. Let's, you know, I'm just like, you know what? I, you know what I would really like to do right now is just to stay angry and bitter forever. That's how it felt. But this is my love. It's my pet name for my wife, my love. And I knew that in that moment, there was a fight. I could let my love grow cold and colder and colder and colder until it just petrifies. Or I could arise. You know what I did? I actually started praying And I heard God speak to me and I looked and Jesus said, why don't you start by humbling yourself? Stop worrying about your wife. I will worry about my daughter, don't you worry. Why don't you start by humbling yourself? And I did, I said, God, search my heart. I know I got a part in this someplace, even though I was quite convinced in that moment that it was all Shirley's fault. And God helped me. And by, by the spirit of God, I was able to humble myself. And it didn't matter that in my mind, I mean, you talk about like sound doctrine. I had it all figured out up here. I knew that I knew I was right. It doesn't matter who's right. Give me a break. This is not high school. This is the love of God in Christ. I'm sorry, I don't know. I have no problem with high school students, all right? <laughs> a greater kind of love, a deeper, more mature kind of love. And I had to fight. I had to overcome. Church family, there are relationships in your life. Your relationship with Jesus, if you have one. Others, this church. There will come times where you will feel betrayed, where you will feel like something's gone wrong. And everything in you will be tempted to be like, no, no, I'm right. They did this or that or said that or the other. And I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to disengage. I'm going to put up my walls. I'm going to live in this bitter place because it feels safe. And I can control this emotion, which is a lie from the pit of hell. No, my family, we must arise. We must overcome. We must see the call to return to the love that we had at first, that exciting, heartfelt, real gratitude kind of love come alive again. We must arise and conquer and see the command by Jesus as not just a command to feel nice towards each other again, but a command to rise up and to fight for love because he fought for us. 
He laid his life down. His love is an aggressive love. It's a pursuing love. It's a relentless love. It's a love that lays down everything for the sake of others. It's the love of God in Christ that surpasses all understanding. It's a real love. It's beyond an idea. It's beyond a feeling. It's beyond an ideology. It is the very nature of God himself at work in a broken world who's desperately Excuse me. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.